0: Hello and welcome to the C21 Podcast. My name is Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well, wherever you may be. Today we hear from Tom Mannering, partner at UK Media and Acquisition Specialist Helium Partners, about his latest transactions and investor confidence in the TV business for 2021. And Bailey Mackey, Chief Executive of New Zealand-based Pongo Productions, on the challenges the industry there faces, convincing US streamers to commission local shows. Tom Mannering is partner at UK Media and Acquisition Specialist Helium Partners. He's advised on more than 30 transactions including the sale of Mammoth Screen to ITV, Love Productions to Sky and Raw TV to Discovery. Most recently he completed the sale of blue-chip natural history producer Silverback Films to All Three Media, Literary Agency The Agency to Avalon and Netflix's Sex Education Maker Eleven to Sony Pictures Television. I caught up with him to hear more about these deals, how the seismic events of 2020 change media and entertainment and how investor confidence in the TV business is shaping up for 2021. We were speaking in July last year, I think it was. You'd just completed a deal which saw Sony Pictures Television acquire UK Indie 11, producers of hit Netflix series Sex Education. The UK had emerged from its first lockdown. It was the summer. Infection rates seemed to be dropping and uh, the virus seemed to be in retreat. Production was beginning to find ways of of getting back up and running again. You were very optimistic about how things were, were looking despite the hiatus. You predicted there'd be more m as done and uh, you completed a couple of those as well. So you obviously knew what you were talking about. Talk us through those transactions and your mood, how it was over the second half of the year and, and how it is now.
1: No, you're, you're quite right. I mean, I was optimistic back in, in July last year. And, and unfortunately, um, you know, we were in a, a good position with, with some number of sort of high quality clients. And yeah, and you're right. We sold uh, the literary agency called The Agency to Avalon. And they represent a number of the sort of UK's top drama writers as people like Mike Bartlett who wrote Dr Foster Catherine Johnson who wrote Mamma Mia Stephen Butchard who wrote The Last Kingdom for Netflix so again they were in a position of, uh, probably the high-end drama space which remains attractive and um, uh, yeah and, and Avalon had had conversations with them in the past and, and we worked with them on that sale so that was a very pleasing uh, outcome to, um, to work with them on that sale which closed in around mid-October and then as you as you say we were working with uh, Silverback Films which is a you know very high-end natural history producer again their sort of three key clients uh, were Netflix they produced a, a show called um, Our Planet for Netflix which was on their the top 10 global shows in, in 2019 uh, they also produced 11 out of the 17 uh, natural history programs on Disney Plus and they produced shows also the only actually third party producer in the natural history space was produced for the BBC and most recently they they broadcast Perfect Planet with David Attenborough uh, and we work with them again you know probably the top producers in their field or in their sub-sector and we work with them on the sale to all three media uh, again which was an attractive transaction i think principally from all three's perspective on that deal for some time they've been very acquisitive in the drama space but this is the, one of the most recent deals they've done in the high-end non-scripted space so it was a good fit with them
0: those deals were obviously underway and discussions were underway pre-pandemic but the agency
1: was was in discussion pre-pandemic like 11 film was in discussion pre-pandemic and that was when in, in conversations although we didn't reach exclusivity with as it happened until about may time so post the pandemic hit and the agency again has, has fared pretty well on on the TV side, which um, the theatre side, they have a a number of theatre clients has obviously been more impacted. So the the TV side has held up and and grown pretty well for them. And actually Silverback films we didn't launch until after the pandemic had hit. Again, we went out to market probably sometime early part of the summer. But I think those particular clients, if you look at the sort of market, I think there's been a little bit of a divide in that those producers producing high-end shows with appeal and relationships with the streaming platforms have fared pretty well during the pandemic. I mean, Netflix is now, you know, grew its production space in the UK in 2020 from 500 million in 2019 to 750 million in in 2020. So it's grown quite substantially and sort of in that process hurdled a number of the UK's linear broadcasters to become, I think, arguably the second most important commissioner in the UK after the BBC, I would think, in terms of production spend. So I think those companies that are well positioned in the high-end space will continue to do well. I think, unfortunately, it is probably the mid-tier producers that are more reliant on the the ad-funded linear broadcasters in the UK that have had more of an impact from from the pandemic
0: I think. So silverback, as you as you say, sorry that that process got underway amidst the pandemic.
1: Yeah, we started that one in around May time and concluded, as, as, as everyone knows, in, in December.
0: And so, how did the uh, the backdrop change those discussions, or, or did the situation precipitate the conversations and, and the sale of that business?
1: I think to be honest, with you, we were in a fortunate position that it was business as usual. I mean, obviously they're they're a fantastic company and, and uh, you know had a huge pipeline of shows and for them in particular they tend to have a three year production cycle so shows they are delivering this year they got commissioned on three years ago and likewise you know, shows they've been commissioned on this year they'll they'll produce in three years time so in terms of the physical job of production if there are difficulties in getting to a particular country to film a particular animal for three month period that isn't the end of the world for them because they've got three years to do it in so from their perspective they were relatively unscathed by, by the pandemic and from a buyer's perspective I think during the pandemic the strength of the streamers and, and the demand from Netflix and Disney Plus, in particular, meant that they were as in in high demand. You know, now as they've ever been. So I think actually, we the pandemic really fortunately didn't didn't impact us at all.
0: They're obviously a, a major player in Natural History in the unscripted side of things. Eleven a major or growing player in in scripted. Scripted's been harder to to get back into production. But what about Natural History also? I mean, they require smaller crews, but still travel restrictions are presumably challenging in in sort of planning those sorts of large-scale natural history productions moving forward.
1: Yeah, yeah, clearly there are challenges. I mean, uh, filming the actual footage in a, in a foreign country is, is clearly difficult if you can't go to those countries. But that is a relatively short-lived thing. When you're looking at a three-year production cycle and you're shut off from going to, I don't know, Svalbard for three months, that is not the end of the world because you have two and a half years to go and take that footage. And often they may have footage from the past or, or, or local people in the territory that can take the footage for them. So whilst it's, it's clearly inconvenient, and, and unhelpful across the production cycle of three years, it's very
0: manageable from that perspective. So, are you seeing any sort of shifting dynamics in terms of the interest in scripted and non-scripted companies, production companies, as a result of the continuing situation that we see ourselves in? Particularly given that since the summer, the UK has had a, a second lockdown in October, and uh, we're now in the midst of, of a third one.
1: Yeah, I mean, in terms of production itself in the drama space, I mean, a lot of the producers, drama producers i know are back in production have been you know towards the end of the summer now clearly it it hasn't been straightforward because there are new protocols lots of coronavirus testing going on uh they have to stop and pause if someone tests positive but by and large those i've spoken to have got through production or are finishing production it's obviously been increased cost of the budget but but one or know they've got through production they've made the show take longer than expected and the budget perhaps has come in a bit higher as a result but generally for the premium commissioners and people like netflix and the like you know i think they've been relatively good at Funding those extra costs, and so from a drama perspective, they, they've they've got through it. I, I think, in terms of from an, from an investor's perspective, premium content, drama, and non-scripted remain still very attractive, and and I'm sure you know in, in the first half of this year, there will continue to be transactions done in the, in the drama space in particular. I think the area that as I mentioned is a bit more challenged is, is probably some of the the, the mid-tier uh, non-scripted companies where the production budgets perhaps aren't quite as healthy. You know, they're reliant on commissions from ITV and Channel Four, and and you know quite widely reported they cut their production spend last year quite significantly and that has an impact doesn't it in terms of delaying production production budget shrink if they have to come up with with extra money for COVID testing you know how do they squeeze that out of the budget if the the broadcaster doesn't pay anymore so I think they've been been more heavily hit by the pandemic unfortunately but I'm sure once hopefully we come out of lockdown in April of this year and and beyond that there will be a bounce back for them uh, and they will be able to recover and and, and that level of non-scripted production can can get back to where it was.
0: Okay so clearly you're you're still Confident, the industry is very confident about scripted, unscripted too. I mean, it depends, as you say, on the the, the scale of uh, the companies. What are the other sort of trends that you see moving forwards over 2021, and what are the lessons that are going to be carried forward from 2020?
1: Yeah, I mean, good question. I mean, what will we see in 2021? I, I think there will be a continuation of of what we've seen in, in 2020, or, although probably not quite at the same sort of rapid pace. So, I think Netflix will continue to grow subscribers, not perhaps at the pace it did in 20. 20. Hopefully we'll see a sort of resurgence for the Ad Funded and funded broadcasters as their ad revenues recover and they spend more money in the UK. We'll also see, and and this is very much sort of documented, lots of the other streamers coming online this year and there are a whole stream of companies looking to grow their business in that space. So whether it be, I mean, the launch of Disney Plus, obviously last year they're expanding to more territories, Discovery Plus, new platforms like HBO Max and Warner Brothers looking to spend money growing that business, NBC's Peacock. So I think we'll see more and more streamers and and the, the Challenge will be how do they differentiate themselves and how do they grow subscribers in the same way? Given that there's obviously you know a number of people you know already subscribed to, to various platforms. How many platforms will they su- subscribe to, and is there a place for all these all these streamers in the marketplace?
0: And what does that mean for production companies? Just greater opportunities?
1: I, I think there are. Yeah, I mean, I think at the moment, obviously Netflix is probably the platform, you know, streaming platform that that is the most beneficial to the UK in terms of new commissioning. But I think we have seen more activity from Apple, more from Amazon, and I think you'll continue to see you know more activity from HBO Max Peacock and other platforms looking to commission in the UK I suspect those commissions will likely be high end very high end shows and so I don't think it will spread sort of far and wide these new commissions but undoubtedly the top drama producers top non scripted producers will pick up shows with these with these new platforms
0: and um, tentative beginnings I guess from Netflix in terms of investing in production companies as well is that a trend that we're going to see yeah it's a fair
1: question and, and we have you know, certainly seen seeing Netflix look to tie up talent with output deals and the like now I think they'll continue to do that and Amazon and, and others continue to look to tie up talent whether they physically buy production companies that's certainly a possibility but I think it's it's more about tying up that talented and output and if they can do that through output deals or other other sort of handcuff type deals that may be their preference rather than buying physical production companies but I'm sure we will we will see you know more of that this year I mean Netflix generally says it doesn't want to buy, you know necessarily in the business of buying physical production but they do want to Certainly secure content from the best content producers. So I think we, we will see more
0: of those types of deals. What about AVOD? With the proliferation of subscription services and people kind of reaching their limits of what they are willing to pay for, AVOD seems to be on a rise as well and predicted to accelerate even further.
1: Interesting to see, I mean, you can obviously access something like ITV's hub, you know, and you can pay for it or you can not pay for it and watch the adverts. Uh, and I think it will depend on the consumer what they prefer. Uh, some will prefer to pay the extra money and not have the adverts and some might might be happy with the adverts. I think generally the, the model that's been most successful to date has been the subscription model rather than the Avod model, because given that there is so much content to watch and, and people, most people have you know, obviously a time constrained, I suspect they probably will want to pay for the best content rather than not pay and then have to sit through a ream of adverts. But I think it depends on, on the consumer. You can imagine that at a certain level of consumers might be different in that, that approach.
0: So we've seen that the, the pandemic has accelerated people's uptake of on-demand services and uh, uh, the, the US studios, for example, were already pivoting from broadcast, I guess, to, to to streaming with the services that they launched last year. But does that mean that sort of broadcast is becoming almost like the shop window for the, the subscription service, you know, a, a way of sort of driving uh, consumers to uh, to subscribe to whatever SVOD propositions available?
1: I mean, clearly th- th- there will be some of that. I think the problem is, I mean, if you look at some of the new services like, let's say, Discovery and Discovery Plus, not many people watch Discovery. So if they're thinking about trying to grow Discovery Plus quite effectively, they can't, advertise on Discovery doesn't really get them the audience they want because they want a wider audience than what they've already got. So I think naturally if they, and you, I'm sure people have seen adverts for Discovery Plus on other platforms, I think they have to advertise elsewhere to drive the, the, the sort of subscribers they've missed on their Discovery platform to Discovery Plus if they're going to grow it to be successful. And that will also be about uh, commissioning, you know, high-end original content nowadays you know people tend to be a bit agnostic about which platform they watch they want to watch the best show the best shows on iPlayer or on Netflix or on Sky Atlantic they'll go wherever the show is so I think again you know to be successful these new platforms have to commission some of the best content to attract subscribers.
0: In terms of that migration that we've seen um, you know the way that consumers have flocked to on-demand services how has that impacted the broadcasters more broadly and how do we expect that to play out in 2021?
1: I think what we have seen in 2020 is the rise of, of someone like Netflix. Netflix were regarded as, as one of, in terms of pure production spend, one of the smaller players, certainly up to a couple of years ago, and, and focusing on a few high-end shows. I think what you've seen in the last 12 months is that they've gone from being smaller than, than Channel 4 in terms of spend and, and Sky, they tend about half about half a billion a year of spend, to now being, you know, rivaling, you know, some of the bigger linear broadcasters in the UK. So Netflix have reported they, they've spent around 750 million in 2020, up from 500 million a year before. And when you think that ITV spends about a billion and, and BBC about 1.6 billion, Netflix are now in that position where they're one of the biggest commissioners in the UK. And if you think that ITV spend a significant portion of their budget in-house, you could make the argument, certainly that Netflix is now probably the second biggest commissioner of indie content in the UK, which I think is quite a big move. And, and even if you look at their own financials, you know, they generated $2 billion of free cash flow in, the, in 2020. That is a significant amount of money to reinvest in content. Uh, and they generated nearly $5 billion of EBITDA. So they're, they're now that player that, that isn't a lost leader anymore. They're Significant money and resources to continue to grow. So I think that is that is something that has been quite material in the last 12 months, and was accelerated by the by the pandemic.
0: How does that kind of change the valuation of UK Indies, for example? Because one of the the great things about the UK is the fact that the producers hold on to the rights to their own programs, and that is what gives them a large part of their value around the world. So um, Netflix doesn't tend to do those kinds of commissions. It's true that. They Producers don't tend to tend,
1: tend to retain rights with Netflix. I mean, that said, Netflix's deal tends to be obviously they'll pay a production fee, they'll typically pay a premium to buy out rights, and depending on the scenario, that there can be other bonuses or or recommissioning incentives around the deal. So, from a pure financial perspective, if you have a hit show on Netflix, the producers are very well rewarded, and possibly more, better rewarded, and sort of on a more timely basis than if they had a show distributed where they retain rights. And I think what we're seeing in the UK in terms of m a is that because the fastest growth part of the market is with the SVODs, those producers which have a relationship with the SVODs are, are more in demand and are growing more quickly and therefore will carry a, a premium multiple from that perspective. That said, there is still a place for owning and retaining rights and I think probably the ideal scenario is the mixed model of having relationships and commissions both with you know, Netflix and others and with the UK linear channels like the BBC because then you have the best of both worlds. You have a long tail of IP income plus the immediate you know, growth from, from Netflix and the premiums that they
0: typically pay. How are the broadcasters going to respond to all of this or, or, or rather what more can they do? We're already seeing, you know, increasing collaborations, uh, pan-European organisations to co-produce or co-commission content, which, you know, puts them on a sort of scale that can rival Netflix and uh, and the other big players. Is that the kind of way forward for, for the broadcasters? More and more collaboration? Yeah,
1: yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, the BBC and others have, have been, you know, doing co-productions with companies like Netflix where they'll they'll buy UK rights and they'll, um, international rights be picked up by Netflix. And so that that is certainly one approach to, to make the budget stretch and, and make sure that the BBC retains its, um, its high quality content. I mean, some of those linear broadcasters have also been buying uh, attractive content from abroad. So there have been, you know, a handful of shows this year that have done well on the BBC. One is, is the Australian import The Secret She Keeps. Uh, and that, you know, did around 6 million views, which was a, you know, not a particularly expensive necessarily Australian drama that perform extremely well on the BBC. So I think they will, as well as commissioning shows, they'll continue to acquire content from abroad, you know, where they see attractive fits.
0: BBC Showcase, the London screenings, are coming up shortly. Uh, The British Film Institute's just released a report into the health of the UK Mm -hmm. film and high-end TV production sector last year, which showed that despite all the production shutdowns that we saw over a sort of five, six-month period spending on high-end TV production in the UK, was only 11% lower than the record figure that was reported for 2019. And there was a significant jump in the final quarter of 2020. So that all bodes very well for the value, I suppose, and and the place of uh, UK film and TV production on the global stage. But we have had Brexit as well since we last spoke how has that changed things or, or, or has it in any way
2: yeah
1: brexit so I, I I don't think it will have a dramatic impact on the UK market is is my sense uh obviously English language programming English language drama in particular you know sells extremely well around the world and I think you know the demand for that content will remain I think the one area that some producers will need to be careful of is, is the various tax credit regime in each of the the various countries particularly in Europe uh, to make sure that they continue to meet the various you know the requirements to um, to qualify for those tax credits generally speaking most of them have sort of cultural tests so that will probably require them to recruit and employ a certain amount of local staff on the productions to ensure they you know maintain those tax credits but I think generally that is often the case anyway so I think most of those you know issues will be able to be navigated quite well but that's probably the one area it is around um, the tax credit regime I think.
0: So as we sit here in another lockdown uh, there are plenty of signs for, for optimism the uh, rollout of vaccinations in, in the UK is uh, going great guns it seems you know are you looking ahead to a summer with production back to the levels that it was pre-pandemic and you know are we going to emerge sort of blurry eyed into a into a bright new future where the sector just you know accelerates and and, and booms all over again
1: yeah but I, I don't think as you, as you pointed out that, that certainly the drama sector has been that badly hit because you say you know production activity was down 10 percent in 2020 on 2019 so it's not as if there has been a, a dramatic impact fortunately but that's said as the vaccination process takes place as the backlog of dramas being delivered results in more commissioning and commissioning of shows that have perhaps sat on the sort of shelf i think it will you know clearly buoy the sector and not only will it recover to where it was in, in 2019 it will accelerate past that level because of, of, of the volume of shows being commissioned so i think that the future does look bright and i think with the linear broadcasters again recovering their ad revenues that will also mean that particularly some of the non scripted producers will again will, will recover and the overall sector will will grow and and be more balanced, rather than just relying on the on the high end producers. I think.
0: And so, from an M&A point of view, as we sit here in February again, are you are you kind of looking ahead to a volume of transactions comparable, say, with 2019?
1: Yeah, I, I think M&A will remain strong. You know, and I don't think there was a was a huge dip last year. Certainly, obviously, in terms of what we've we've experienced at our firm personally, and I think yeah, there will be continued M&A activity as the top producers remain in high demand. And so, it's, I think you are quite likely to see you know, a string of transactions announced in the first half of this year and, and, and beyond as, um, as new companies come to the market. So I think that's that is extremely likely.
0: Tom Mannering from Helium Partners, speaking with me as part of our Beyond 2020 series of C21 TV video interviews you can watch on our site right now. Bailey Mackey is the chief executive of New Zealand-based factual and unscripted specialist Pongo Productions, which has a co-development deal with Fremantle and is behind projects including Sidewalk Karaoke, The GC and All or Nothing, New Zealand All Blacks for Amazon. The producer, writer, director and former pro rugby player is one of the country's foremost TV producers and spoke to Nico Franks this week over Zoom after their face-to-face interview had to be axed when Auckland was put into a three-day lockdown. Bailey discussed Covid complacency in New Zealand, lobbying major US streamers to commission originals in the country rather than just using it as a filming location, and how he sees the disruption facing distributors playing out. First of all, they began by talking about how Pongo's business has grown since the start of the pandemic last year
2: a little bit hard uh because obviously like you um i have a lot of friends both in the uk and the us and uh we, we have moved with relative freedom uh, particularly in the last seven or eight months um so i i guess what that's meant is uh we've sort of under undergone um some massive growth uh probably 30 to 35 percent uh growth um this year, and and it, it could be uh, the same again this year. So, I mean, if you if you if any business is recording that type of growth, um, I think uh, it it probably uh, speaks to kind of the advantageous uh, position we have as content creators down here. So, so look, I mean, you know, at a simple level, it means we've been uh, definitely open for business, both uh, locally and globally. Um, I think for us, it has been about kind of servicing uh, initially our local uh, clients, um, the the local networks, the local buyers here in New Zealand, and then sort of in the midst of uh, discussions with international buyers. So uh, it's pretty good, pretty good and heady times here in uh, in in the New Zealand uh, production industry.
3: Have those recent changes to the the levels in New Zealand affected productions that you've got going on? Are you more wary now going forward about certain productions and and what you'll be able to do?
2: I think, if anything, we we probably got a little bit complacent. I mean, look, uh, I think lockdown was announced on Sunday um, for Auckland level three. I mean, on Saturday there were thirty two thousand people at a concert, a 660 concert in Wellington. So, so so potentially as a country, perhaps we're a little bit complacent. It wasn't as front of mind as it needs needed to be. Um, yeah, look, it, it has impacted us in certain ways. We have a, a live um, current affairs show, which goes to air every Sunday. Um, that's obviously impacted because we have to figure out how we do that. We've been there before, so I think we, we'll be fine. Um, we have another a couple of um, shows as well. Well, we actually have five shows in production Um, that are shooting in different parts of New Zealand Um, one crew was out of Auckland at the time and have just decided to just camp up and continue filming the series uh, outside of Auckland Um, and we're just making do Um, I think that's probably again a testament to kind of the Kiwi mentality of finding a way of uh, getting things done the the key learning is is it's here for a a lot longer than any of us anticipated. I think when this first hit, you know, after the initial lockdown period, which happened in kind of sort of March, April last year, I think everybody sort of was like, oh, yep, you know, we're now in post-COVID. I think, you know, the term post-COVID is probably a long way off uh, um, uh, yet. And it's just our new reality.
3: Have you now got the kind of impetus to push into other areas that weren't really on your radar prior to uh, the pandemic?
2: Oh, look, I I think one of the things that I've noticed is that every international buyer, whether it be kind of the big streamers or uh, cable, US cable buyers, um, are all really interested and keen uh, to talk to New Zealand producers or New Zealand content creators. I think the biggie is that I think for the most part they're figuring out um, solutions to be able to film projects that are already sort of further up the pipeline than, say, um, a piece of an original IP from us. Um, and then I think so, so usually that's the tends to be the kind of first conversation. Then, second one is kind of in regards to original IP. Are we in areas that we haven't been? Well, look, you know, we're unscripted, factual, and entertainment. So, no, not really. What we're noticing is, or what I'm noticing is, we're just having a lot broader conversations with a uh, wider client base, um, sort of, uh, strategy is We sort of have, uh, internationally sort of a dozen key relationships. We tend to go deeper with those, uh, buyers rather than sort of, um, you know, pitching, um, to, uh, 40 buyers. Um, so, so we're, we're now going beyond that kind of initial 12, uh, buyers and, and, uh, sort of talking to a lot more people a lot of it's exploratory um and as you know um most of it doesn't end up anywhere um but it's always uh I think it's always good um you know to 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 have those discussions and
3: as a producer based in Aotearoa New Zealand how do you feel about the local demand for telling new stories and also the international demand for given there's a boom in in non-english language content at the moment you know the conversation around diversity equity and inclusion that we really saw ramp up in volume in 2020 that's continuing through to 2021 do you think there should be or is there already an existing drive in terms of stories told in te reo maori that could potentially uh, trouble
2: yeah so uh definitely uh locally uh, there has been a big push and i think um we um we have really noticed that both in terms of kind of representation of an indigenous or Maori, uh perspective um, that's um that is um high on the agenda of uh, both um the you know the, the networks and platforms that are here in New Zealand, but also uh, the funding agencies that wrap around them. So, so I think that that's a, that's a big. Um, there's been a big drive towards that in recent times. I think there's also the pending sort of strengthening of a public uh, broadcast remit, which is kind of sits behind, I guess, our largest sort of uh, commercial network, which is TVNZ. I think internationally, yes, that is the case. I think for us here in New Zealand, it's a little bit hard because effectively, if you're a US buyer and, um, you know, you have a a Native American perspective and then you have a, a black perspective and then you have, I guess, a Hispanic perspective, um, so, a Polynesian uh, slash Maori perspective is is probably a little bit further uh, down um, their list of priorities. I I, um, I do sense though a greater sense of empathy uh, towards that, and I think we have a connection via Hawaii in, in terms of Polynesian. I mean, look, there's always writers on that. Like um, I'm sure if uh, Taika Waititi rocked in uh, with an unscripted project, uh, it goes to the top of the heap. Uh, um, so so look i do think there are exceptions but i think that um overall um while conversations are being had i and and look there have been examples in recent times where you know projects have been stood up i think um uh, deadlands was one um which was on a MC streaming service so so i think look i think there are um instances of that and i think um there are other shows like Casketeers, which which have have played uh, that way. I mean, I, I um, produced the All Black series All or Nothing for Amazon, which wasn't an Indigenous um, story per se, but, but did have a, a, a big element in it. So in, in terms of straight commissions um, from streamers, there have been a number of acquisitions um, by Netflix and Amazon um, in this part of the world. In terms of actual straight commissions, I think Amazon and maybe uh, The Dark Tourist, uh, made by Mark McNeil and, and David Ferrier.
3: Because, yeah, it's a, it's a fact that those services, in some countries where there's a lot of pressure on them to commission local stories, they're, they're doing it. So France, for example, and having a lot of success with that. Do you think more pressure needs to be put on them to commission more local stories in New Zealand?
2: The simple answer is yes, and uh, to be honest, um part of various kind of uh, lobby groups, um, you know, and kind of producer collectives that are pushing for um, sort of uh, equity in, in that regard. Um, I'd love to know more about the French scenario. Is that kind of like a quota system of, of local? I mean, French, I mean, the, the bigger advantage that France has is two things. One is, is 55 million, I think, live in France, and, and the other one is they are have a, a diaspora that you know french-speaking diaspora which I think is probably about uh, the same amount again another 55 million or so live outside so it's a that's a potential audience of about a hundred million um, so you know and that includes kind of the French colonies um, so so whereas I guess for us um, you know coming up with that That old cliche of sort of uh, universal uh, characters, um, particularly in Unscripted, you know, universal characters and sort of global themes, getting that sweet spot right is is kind of um, a biggie in regards to Unscripted.
3: And is it a kind of softly, softly approach that's been taken there with the lobbying or?
2: Probably the issue for us is our size, right, in terms of, you know, how much money um, some of those streamers make out of this this part of the world and, you know, would it be worth it for them, I think, would be is kind of the key question. I, I would hope that it would be, is my simple answer. And I think dollar in, dollar out, um, the, the Kiwi uh, industry punches above its weight. I think, you know, if you give a Kiwi producer uh, $10 um, and you give, give the same producer from another part of the world $10, and I'd like to back the Kiwi to, to deliver something that was... Uh, could hold its own.
3: And last year you wrote a really interesting op-ed piece in the spin-off about how you saw <laughs> the future of uh, Maori television, the, the Indigenous TV channel in New Zealand, and that was pushing for uh, for it to move all online, really, uh, was kind of the essence of, of your argument. Uh, what was the response to that and and how is that kind of conversation evolving?
2: Um, it depends on who you ask as to what the response was, But but I guess... Um, Look, I I think it's, make I I love uh, Māori TV. Um, It's where I cut my teeth. Um, And I guess I'm probably an example of somebody who started out in the public uh, broadcast uh, environment and then sort of in recent times have become um, uh, more commercial. Um, So, but uh, I guess the point is, is that in an incredibly fragmented market, um, how are you going to find your audience? And I think just when you have a remit of sort of cultural and language revitalization, sticking to kind of the industry norms of linear TV and its, and its many sort of vagaries um, just probably doesn't make sense to me. Um, it, you know, I, I felt that a digital uh, on-demand service um, where people could snack or, or feast um, uh, depending on the quality of the product would be a far better uh, position uh, for the channel to be in so look um, I still love multi TV um, and I um, you know I think that um, it's just a tough tough environment to find an audience as we all know so anything that can break through or cut through I think, doesn't necessarily need to be kind of time dependent or, or, or scheduled because, you know, they throw all this resource into prime time, um, what you know, linear prime time when, when, when that's uh, when every other network is is, is throwing um, the majority of their resources, and then you layer on top of that uh, the VOD services, the many VOD services that exist. Um, so. So it's just a it's it's a really tough ask when when you have a platform whose primary purpose for being is a is a cultural revitalization um, remit. We sort of operate under a, a model of sort of hero hub and engaged and 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 when you think about hero, hero is kind of your lead piece of um, content and usually uh, that's a linear piece of content and. And then, then if you can drive them towards a digital community um, and then you can sort of uh, go a bit deeper um, uh, with that community, I think is kind of the sweet spot for us. I mean, look, everyone, you know, you, you have to have a digital strategy no matter what. Um, so I think everybody understands that, whether it's broadcasters or, um, you know, uh, linear broadcasters that, you know, you need a digital strategy. I think the biggie I, I feel is is the disruption that's going on in the distribution part of our business, because I think producers now are becoming a bit more savvy with their back end rights, and New Zealand traditionally has had a really strong um, rights position in favour of broad, uh, in favour of uh, producers. I almost uh, swore there by saying in favour of broadcasters, but um, broadcasters are strengthening uh, their perspective on that. I mean they've got to look at chlorine sort of and opening up revenue opportunities, more and more revenue opportunities. I think the other part to it too becomes, um, you know, uh, are we better off uh, looking at international distribution or going direct to consumer after that initial um, sort of um, airing on on linear here? And, that, and that's a decision we're sort of making more and more as content. Well, we are, our company is making more and more as the old model is um, underwrite locally, um, exploit internationally. Whether that be finished tape or um, as a format, now we're kind of like, well, we underwrite locally. Are we better off to look to monetize that direct to consumer? Whether that's via monetizing uh, YouTube channels or even Facebook um, or, or other uh, opportunities that exist. So I think just. Uh, it'd be interesting kind of where uh, distribution and the old distribution model nets out uh, in the next couple of years. I think that's just a really um, interesting space to watch.
3: What's your kind of impression of how that cons- consolidation has, has affected the industry overall over the past few years, you know, with Dana Jay and Endemol Shine, kind of the biggest one in recent years?
2: Hey, Those guys are massive, eh? Um, look, I think um, ultimately, you know, consolidation, is I think a necessity for certain parts of the business. Um, what it, does does it affect uh, us personally here in New Zealand? Not really. I think that it's probably in um, larger territories where the impact of that is felt uh, a, a a bit more. I had previously been part of uh, IWorks, uh, which became Warner Brothers uh, International. So, um, well, were were acquired by Warner Brothers International. So had um some you know experience probably for 5 or 6 years with the iworks group so i you know have uh, previously been part of an uh, an international uh, group look i think um my biggie is i actually really love the independence um of um you know having my own sort of gig um i'm really cognisant of Creativity and ideas need to drive everything. Um, you know, there's no business if there's no ideas if, and there's no kind of distribution if there's no ideas. Um, so um, so I, you know, I really enjoy that. And, um, and I'm not saying that, that that doesn't exist in the big companies, not at all. I just think that, you know, when, when you have the agility um, to be a bit more fleet-footed, I think you can... Um, you can try things that are smaller as well, smaller projects, which might not meet the kind of you know, um, turnover threshold uh, in some of those companies.
3: And just finally, in many ways, you're speaking kind of from the future that a lot of our viewers will be hoping for themselves. You know, you're you're living in relative freedom at the moment. You know, COVID cases in New Zealand are very, very, very low. What advice would you give to them for when things hopefully do open back? later on in 2021 and obviously you have had the experience of lockdowns but not to the extent of outside of New Zealand but what advice would you give even from a personal or a business perspective when things do reopen again what are the key things to remember?
2: I don't, I, I'm not speaking from a position of freedom I have kids um, so <laughs> that doesn't uh, <laughs> so uh, yeah uh, look I think um, what, what advice is I mean look there's I just think that a lot of kind of our business has been predicated on traditional models, like linear TV. You sell a show show to a linear broadcaster and um, you'll you'll move into production, you'll make that show, you'll deliver that show, and then, you know, the tale depends on, um, you know, distribution, afterlife. I I, I think the most important thing is to think, well... Actually, um, I don't think there are any rules that apply anymore to how um, you look to monetize um, the second and third and fourth opportunities uh, that exist on content. And I think for us, and that has been around really strengthening what we're doing in digital, and, and I know, look, I'm, I'm not trying to sound like this is some big brainwave because um, if you don't have a digital strategy, um, as part of your business, then you're not really in business, are you? Um, nowadays, so so. Look, I think that's probably the the key learning, and um, and probably to um, use your vote wisely and perhaps vote for um, better leaders of your country. Bailey Mackey from Pongho Productions
0: talking to Nico Franks. That's all for this episode. There'll be more from the podcast next week. But in the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.